0: Chapter 9 of the Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 by Friedrich Engels. Chapter 9. The Mining Proletariat. The production of raw materials and fuel for a manufacture so colossal as that of England requires a considerable number of workers. But of all the materials needed for its industries, except wool which belongs to the agricultural districts, England produces only the minerals, the metals, and the coal. While Cornwall possesses rich copper, tin, zinc, and lead mines, Staffordshire, Wales, and other districts yield great quantities of iron. And almost the whole north and west of England, central Scotland, and certain districts of Ireland produce a superabundance of coal." In the Cornish mines about nineteen thousand men and eleven thousand women and children are employed, in part above and in part below ground. Within these mines below ground men and boys above twelve years old are employed almost exclusively. The condition of these workers seems, according to the Children's Employment Commission's reports, to be comparatively endurable materially, and the English often enough boast of their strong, bold miners who follow the veins of mineral below the bottom of the very sea. But in the matter of the health of these workers this same Children's Employment Commission's report judges differently. It shows in Dr. Barham's intelligent report how the inhalation of an atmosphere containing little oxygen, and mixed with dust and the smoke of blasting powder such as prevails in the mines, seriously affects the lungs, disturbs the action of the heart, and diminishes the activity of the digestive organs that wearing toil, and especially the climbing up and down of ladders, upon which even vigorous young men have to spend in some mines more than an hour a day, and which precedes and follows daily work, contributes greatly to the development of these evils, so that men who begin this work in early youth are far from reaching the stature of women who work above ground. That many die young of galloping consumption, and most miners at middle age of slow consumption, that they age prematurely and become unfit for work between the thirty-fifth and forty-fifth years that many are attacked by acute inflammations of the respiratory organs when exposed to the sudden change from the warm air of the shaft after climbing the latter in profuse perspiration to the cold wind above ground and that these acute inflammations are very frequently fatal work above ground breaking and sorting the ore is done by girls and children and is described as very wholesome, being done in the open air. In the north of England, on the borders of Northumberland and Durham, are the extensive lead-mines of Alston Moor. The reports from this district agree almost wholly with those from Cornwall. Here, too, there are complaints of want of oxygen, excessive dust, powder-smoke, carbonic acid gas, and sulphur in the atmosphere of the workings. In consequence, the miners here, as in Cornwall, are small of stature nearly all suffer from the thirtieth year throughout life from chest affections which end especially when this work is persisted in as is almost always the case in consumption so greatly shortening the average of life of these people if the miners of this district are somewhat longer lived than those of cornwall this is the case because they do not enter the mines before reaching the nineteenth year while in cornwall as we have seen this work is begun in the twelfth year Nevertheless, the majority die here, too, between forty and fifty years of age, according to medical testimony. Of seventy-nine miners whose death was entered upon the public register of the district, and who attained an average of forty-five years, thirty-seven had died of consumption, and six of asthma. In the surrounding districts, Allendale, Stanhope, and Middleton, the average length of life was forty-nine, forty-eight, and forty-seven years, respectively and the deaths from chest affections composed forty-eight, fifty-four, and fifty-six percent of the whole number. Let us compare these figures with the so-called Swedish tables, detailed tables of mortality embracing all the inhabitants of Sweden, and recognized in England as the most correct standard hitherto attainable for the average length of life of the British working class. According to them, male persons who survive the nineteenth year attain an average of fifty-seven and a half years but according to this the north of england miners are robbed by their work of an average of ten years of life yet the swedish tables are accepted as the standard of longevity of the workers and present therefore the average chances of life as affected by the unfavourable conditions in which the proletariat lives a standard of longevity less than the normal one in this district we find again the lodging-houses and sleeping-places with which we have already become acquainted in the towns and in quite as filthy, disgusting, and overcrowded a state as there. Commissioner Mitchell visited one such sleeping barrack, eighteen feet long, thirteen feet wide, and arranged for the reception of forty-two men and fourteen boys, or fifty-six persons altogether, one half of whom slept above the other in berths as on shipboard. There was no opening for the escape of the foul air, and although no one had slept in this pen for three nights preceding the visit, The smell and the atmosphere were such that Commissioner Mitchell could not endure it a moment. What must it be through a hot summer night with fifty-six occupants? And this is not the steerage of an American slave-ship. It is the dwelling of free-born Britons. Let us turn now to the most important branch of British mining, the iron and coal mines, which the Children's Employment Commission treats in common, and with all the detail with which the importance of the subject demands. Nearly the whole of the first part of this report is devoted to the condition of the workers employed in these mines. After the detailed description which I have furnished of the state of the industrial workers, I shall, however, be able to be as brief in dealing with this subject as the scope of the present work requires. In the coal and iron mines, which are worked in pretty much the same way, children of four, five, and seven years are employed. They are set to transporting the ore or coal loosened by the miner from its place to the horse-path or the main shaft, and to opening and shutting the doors, which separate the divisions of the mine and regulate its ventilation, for the passage of workers and material. For watching the doors, the smallest children are usually employed, who thus pass twelve hours daily, in the dark, alone sitting usually in damp passages without even having work enough to save them from the stupefying brutalizing tedium of doing nothing the transport of coal and ironstone, on the other hand is very hard labor the stuff being shoved in large tubs without wheels over the uneven floor of the mine often over moist clay or through water and frequently up steep inclines and through paths so low-roofed that the workers are forced to creep on hands and knees for this more wearing labour therefore older children and half-grown girls are employed one man or two boys per tub are employed according to circumstances and if two boys one pushes and the other pulls the loosening of the ore or coal which is done by men or strong youths of sixteen years or more is also very weary work the usual working day is eleven to twelve hours often longer in scotland it reaches fourteen hours and double time is frequent when all the employers are at work below ground twenty-four and even thirty-six hours at a stretch. Set times for meals are almost unknown, so that these people eat when hunger and time permit. The standard of living of the miners is in general described as fairly good, and their wages high in comparison with those of the agricultural labourers surrounding them, who, however, live at starvation rates, except in certain parts of Scotland and in the Irish mines, where great misery prevails we shall have occasion to return later to this statement, which, by the way, is merely relative, implying comparison to the poorest class in all England. Meanwhile we shall consider the evils which arise from the present method of mining, and the reader may judge whether any pay in money can indemnify the miner for such suffering. The children and young people who are employed in transporting coal and ironstone all complain of being overtired even in the most recklessly conducted industrial establishments there is no such universal and exaggerated overwork the whole report proves this with a number of examples on every page it is constantly happening that children throw themselves down on the stone hearth or the floor as soon as they reach home fall asleep at once without being able to take a bite of food and have to be washed and put to bed while asleep It even happens that they lie down on the way home and are found by their parents late at night asleep on the road. It seems to be a universal practice among these children to spend Sunday in bed, to recover in some degree from the overexertion of the week. Church and school are visited by but few, and even of these the teachers complain of their great sleepiness and the want of all eagerness to learn. The same thing is true of the elder girls and women. They are overworked in the most brutal manner. This weariness, which is almost always carried to a most painful pitch, cannot fail to affect the constitution. The first result of such over-exertion is the diversion of vitality to the one-sided development of the muscles, so that those especially of the arms, legs, and back, of the shoulders and chest, which are chiefly called into activity in pushing and pulling, attain an uncommonly vigorous development, while all the rest of the body suffers and is atrophied from want of nourishment. More than all else the stature suffers, being stunted and retarded. Nearly all miners are short, except those of Leicestershire and Warwickshire who work under exceptionally favourable conditions. Further, among boys as well as girls, puberty is retarded, among the former often until the eighteenth year. Indeed a nineteen-years-old boy appeared before Commissioner Simmons, showing no evidence beyond that of the teeth that he was more than eleven or twelve years old this prolongation of the period of childhood is at bottom nothing more than a sign of checked development which does not fail to bear fruit in later years. Distortions of the legs, knees bent inwards and feet bent outwards, deformities of the spinal column and other malformations appear the more readily in constitutions thus weakened, in consequence of the almost universally constrained position during work. And they are so frequent that in Yorkshire and Lancashire, as in Northumberland and Durham, the assertion is made by many witnesses, not only by physicians, that a miner may be recognized by his shape among a hundred other persons. The women seem to suffer especially from this work, and are seldom, if ever, as straight as other women. There is testimony here, too, to the fact that deformities of the pelvis, and consequent difficult, even fatal child-bearing, arise from the work of women in the mines. But apart from these local deformities, the coal-miners suffer from a number of special affections easily explained by the nature of the work. Diseases of the digestive organs are first in order. Want of appetite, pains in the stomach, nausea and vomiting are most frequent, with violent thirst which can be quenched only with the dirty, lukewarm water of the mine. The digestion is checked and all the other affections are thus invited diseases of the heart especially hypertrophy inflammation of the heart and pericardium contraction of the auriculo-ventricular communications and the entrance of the aorta are also mentioned repeatedly as diseases of the minors and are readily explained by overwork and the same is true of the almost universal rupture which is a direct consequence of protracted overexertion in part from the same cause and in part from the bad dust-filled atmosphere mixed with carbonic acid and hydrocarbon gas which might so readily be avoided there arise numerous painful and dangerous affections of the lungs especially asthma which in some districts appears in the fortieth in others in the thirtieth year in most of the miners and makes them unfit for work in a short time among those employed in wet workings the oppression in the chest naturally appears much earlier in some districts in scotland between the twentieth and thirtieth years during which time the affected lungs are especially susceptible to inflammations and diseases of a feverish nature. The peculiar disease of workers of this sort is black spittle, which arises from the saturation of the whole lung with coal particles, and manifests itself in general debility, headache, oppression of the chest, and thick, black, mucus expectoration. In some districts this disease appears in a mild form, in others, on the contrary, it is wholly incurable, especially in Scotland. Here, besides the symptoms just mentioned, which appear in an intensified form, short, wheezing breathing, rapid pulse exceeding 100 per minute, and abrupt coughing with increasing leanness and debility speedily make the patient unfit for work. Every case of this disease ends fatally. Dr. Mackellar in Pencaitland, East Lothian, testified that in all the coal-mines which are properly ventilated this disease is unknown while it frequently happens that miners who go from well to ill-ventilated mines are seized by it. The profit-greed of mine-owners which prevents the use of ventilators is therefore responsible for the fact that this men's disease exists at all. Rheumatism, too, is, with the exception of the Warwick and Leicestershire workers, a universal disease of the coal miners, and arises especially from the frequently damp working-places. The consequence of all these diseases is that, in all districts, without exception, the coal miners age early and become unfit for work soon after the fortieth year, though this is different in different places. A coal miner who can follow his calling after the forty-fifth or fiftieth year is a very great rarity indeed. It is universally recognized that such workers enter upon old age at forty. This applies to those who loosen the coal from the bed, the loaders, who have constantly to lift heavy blocks of coal into the tubs, Age with the twenty-eighth or thirtieth year, so that it is proverbial in the coal-mining districts that the loaders are old before they are young. That this premature old age is followed by the early death of the colliers is a matter of course, and a man who reaches sixty is a great exception among them. Even in South Staffordshire, where the mines are comparatively wholesome, few men reach their fifty-first year. Along with this early superannuation of the workers, we naturally find, just as in the case of the mills, frequent lack of employment of the elder men, who are often supported by very young children. If we sum up briefly the results of the work in coal-mines, we find, as Dr. Southwood Smith, one of the commissioners, does, that through prolonged childhood on the one hand, and premature age on the other, that period of life in which the human being is in full possession of his powers, the period of manhood, is greatly shortened while the length of life in general is below the average. This, too, on the debit side of the bourgeoisie's reckoning. All this deals only with the average of the English coal-mines. But there are many in which the state of things is much worse, those, namely, in which thin seams of coal are worked. The coal would be too expensive if a part of the adjacent sand and clay were removed. So the coal-miners permit only the seams to be worked, whereby the passages which elsewhere are four or five feet high and more are here kept so low that to stand upright in them is not to be thought of the working man lies on his side and loosens the coal with his pick resting upon his elbow as a pivot whence follow inflammations of the joint and in cases where he is forced to kneel of the knee also the women and children who have to transport the coal crawl upon their hands and knees fastened to the tub by a harness and chain which frequently passes between the legs, while a man behind pushes with hands and head. The pushing with the head engenders local irritations, painful swellings and ulcers. In many cases, too, the shafts are wet, so that these workers have to crawl through dirty or salt water several inches deep, being thus exposed to a special irritation of the skin. It can be readily imagined how greatly the disease is already peculiar to the miners are fostered by this especially frightful slavish toil. But these are not all the evils which descend upon the head of the coal-miner. In the whole British Empire there is no occupation in which a man may meet his end in so many diverse ways as in this one. The coal-mine is the scene of a multitude of the most terrifying calamities, and these come directly from the selfishness of the bourgeoisie. The hydrocarbon gas which develops so freely in these mines forms, when combined with atmospheric air, an explosive which takes fire upon coming into contact with a flame, and kills everyone within its reach. Such explosions take place, in one mine or another, nearly every day. On September 28, 1844, one killed ninety-six men in Haswell Colliery, Durham. The carbonic acid gas, which also develops in great quantities, accumulates in the deeper parts of the mine, frequently reaching the height of a man, and suffocates every one who gets into it. The doors which separate the sections of the mines are meant to prevent the propagation of explosions and the movement of the gases, but since they are entrusted to small children, who often fall asleep or neglect them, this means of prevention is illusory. A proper ventilation of the mines by means of fresh air shafts could almost entirely remove the injurious effects of both these gases, but for this purpose the bourgeoisie has no money to spare preferring to command the workingman to use the davy lamp which is wholly useless because of its dull light and is therefore usually replaced by a candle if an explosion occurs the recklessness of the miner is blamed though the bourgeois might have made the explosion well-nigh impossible by supplying good ventilation further every few days the roof of a working falls in and buries or mangles the workers employed in it it is the interest of the bourgeois to have the seams worked out as completely as possible and hence the accidents of this sort then too the ropes by which the men descend into the mines are often rotten and break so that the unfortunates fall and are crushed all these accidents and i have no room for special cases carry off yearly according to the mining journal some fourteen hundred human beings The Manchester Guardian reports at least two or three accidents every week for Lancashire alone. In nearly all mining districts the people composing the coroner's juries are, in almost all cases, dependent upon the mine-owners, and where this is not the case, immemorial custom ensures that the verdict shall be accidental death. Besides, the jury takes very little interest in the state of the mine, because it does not understand anything about the matter but the Children's Employment Commission does not hesitate to make the mine-owners directly responsible for the greater number of these cases. As to the education and morals of the mining population, they are, according to the Children's Employment Commission, pretty good in Cornwall and excellent in Alston Moor. In the coal districts, in general, they are, on the contrary, reported as on an excessively low plane. The workers live in the country in neglected regions, and if they do their weary work, no human being outside the police force troubles himself about them. Hence, and from the tender age at which children are put to work, it follows that their mental education is wholly neglected. The day-schools are not within their reach, the evening and Sunday-schools merely shams, the teachers worthless. Hence few can read, and still fewer write. The only point upon which their eyes are as yet open is the fact that their wages are far too low for their hateful and dangerous work. To church they go seldom or never. All the clergy complain of their irreligion as beyond comparison. As a matter of fact, their ignorance of religious and of secular things alike is such that the ignorance of the factory operatives, shown in numerous examples in the foregoing pages, is trifling in comparison with it. The categories of religion are known to them only from the terms of their oaths their morality is destroyed by their work itself that the overwork of all miners must engender drunkenness is self-evident as to their sexual relations men women and children work in the mines in many cases wholly naked and in most cases nearly so by reason of the prevailing heat and the consequences in the dark lonely mines may be imagined the number of illegitimate children is here disproportionately large and indicates what goes on among the half-savage population below ground, but proves, too, that the illegitimate intercourse of the sexes has not here, as in the great cities, sunk to the level of prostitution. The labour of women entails the same consequences as in the factories, dissolves the family, and makes the mother totally incapable of household work. When the Children's Employment Commission's report was laid before Parliament, Lord Ashley hastened to bring in a bill wholly forbidding the work of women in the mines, and greatly limiting that of children. The bill was adopted, but has remained a dead letter in most districts, because no mine inspectors were appointed to watch over its being carried into effect. The evasion of the law is very easy in the country districts in which the mines are situated, and no one need be surprised that the miners' union laid before the Home Secretary an official notice last year, that in the Duke of Hamilton's coal-mines in Scotland more than sixty women were at work, or that the Manchester Guardian reported that a girl perished in an explosion in a mine near Wigan, and no one troubled himself further about the fact that the infringement of the law was thus revealed. In single cases the employment of women may have been discontinued, but in general the old state of things remains as before. These are, however, not all the afflictions known to the coal miners. The bourgeoisie, not content with ruining the health of these people, keeping them in danger of sudden loss of life, robbing them of all opportunity for education, plunders them in other directions in the most shameless manner. The truck system is here the rule, not the exception, and is carried on in the most direct and undisguised manner. The cottage system, likewise, is universal, and here almost a necessity but it is used here too for the better plundering of the workers. To these means of oppression must be added all sorts of direct cheating. While coal is sold by weight, the worker's wages are reckoned chiefly by measure, and when his tub is not perfectly full he receives no pay whatever, while he gets not a farthing for overmeasure. If there is more than a specified quantity of dust in the tub, a matter which depends much less upon the miner than upon the nature of the seam, he not only loses his whole wage, but is fined besides. The fine system in general is so highly perfected in the coal-mines, that a poor devil who has worked the whole week and comes for his wages, sometimes learn from the overseer, who fine at discretion and without summoning the workers, that he not only has no wages, but must pay so and so much in fines extra. The overseer has in general absolute power over wages he notes the work done, and complies himself as to what he pays the worker, who is forced to take his word. In some mines, where the pay is according to weight, false decimal scales are used, whose weights are not subject to the inspection of the authorities. In one coal-mine there was actually a regulation that any workman who intended to complain of the falseness of the scales must give notice to the overseer three weeks in advance. In many districts, especially in the north of England, it is customary to engage the workers by the year. They pledge themselves to work for no other employer during that time, but the mine-owner by no means pledges himself to give them work, so that they are often without it for months together, and if they seek elsewhere they are sent to the treadmill for six weeks for breach of contract. In other contracts, work to the amount of twenty-six shillings every fourteen days is promised the miners but not furnished. In others, still, the employers advance the miners' small sums to be worked out afterwards, thus binding the debtors to themselves. In the North, the custom is general of keeping the payment of wages one week behindhand, chaining the miners in this way to their work. And to complete the slavery of these enthralled workers, nearly all the justices of the peace in the coal districts are mine-owners themselves, or relatives or friends of mine-owners, and possess almost unlimited power in these poor, uncivilized regions, where there are few newspapers, these few in the service of the ruling class, and but little other agitation. It is almost beyond conception how these poor coal-miners have been plundered and tyrannized over by justices of the peace acting as judges in their own cause. So it went on for a long time the workers did not know any better than that they were there for the purpose of being swindled out of their very lives but gradually even among them and especially in the factory districts where contact with the more intelligent operatives could not fail of its effect there arose a spirit of opposition to the shameless oppression of the coal kings the men began to form unions and strike from time to time in civilized districts they joined the chartists body and soul the great coal district of the north of england shut off from all industrial intercourse remained backward until after many efforts partly of the chartists and partly of the more intelligent miners themselves a general spirit of opposition arose in eighteen forty three such a movement seized the workers of northumberland and durham that they placed themselves at the forefront of a general union of coal miners throughout the kingdom and appointed w p roberts a chartist solicitor of bristol their attorney-general, he having distinguished himself in earlier Chartist trials. The Union soon spread over a great majority of the districts. Agents were appointed in all directions, who held meetings everywhere, and secured new members. At the first conference of delegates in Manchester in 1844 there were 60,000 members represented, and at Glasgow, six months later, at the second conference, 100,000. Here all the affairs of the coal miners were discussed, and decisions as to the greater strikes arrived at. Several journals were founded, especially the miners' advocate at Newcastle-upon-Tyne for defending the rights of the miners. On March 31, 1844, the contracts of all the miners of Northumberland and Durham expired. Roberts was empowered to draw up a new agreement, in which the men demanded 1. Payment by weight instead of measure. 2. Determination of weight by means of ordinary scales subject to the public inspectors. 3. Half-yearly renewal of contracts. 4. Abolition of the fine system and payment according to work actually done. 5. The employers to guarantee to miners in their exclusive service at least four days' work per week, or wages for the same. This agreement was submitted to the Coal Kings, and a deputation appointed to negotiate with them they answered however that for them the union did not exist that they had to deal with single workmen only and should never recognise the union they also submitted an agreement of their own which ignored all the foregoing points and was naturally refused by the miners war was thus declared on march thirty first eighteen forty four forty thousand miners laid down their picks and every mine in the county stood empty. The funds of the union were so considerable that for several months a weekly contribution of two shillings and sixpence could be assured to each family. While the miners were thus putting the patience of their masters to the test, Roberts organized with incomparable perseverance both strike and agitation, arranged for the holding of meetings, traversed England from one end to the other, preached peaceful and legal agitation, and carried on a crusade against the despotic justices of the peace and truckmasters, such as had never been known in England. This he had begun at the beginning of the year. Wherever a minor had been condemned by a justice of the peace, he obtained a habeas corpus from the court of Queen's Bench, brought his client to London, and always secured an acquittal. Thus, January 13th, Judge Williams of Queen's Bench, acquitted three miners condemned by the justices of the peace of bilston south staffordshire the offence of these people was that they refused to work in a place which threatened to cave in and had actually caved in before their return on an earlier occasion judge pattison had acquitted six workingmen so that the name of roberts began to be a terror to the mine owners in preston four of his clients were in jail in the first week of January he proceeded thither to investigate the case on the spot, but found when he arrived the condemned all released before the expiration of the sentence. In Manchester there were seven in jail. Roberts obtained a habeas corpus and acquittal for all from Judge Whiteman. In Prescott nine coal-miners were in jail, accused of creating a disturbance in St. Helens, South Lancashire, and awaiting trial. When Roberts arrived upon the spot, they were released at once all this took place in the first half of february in april roberts released a miner from jail in derby four in wakefield and four in leicester so it went on for a time until these dogberries came to have some respect for the miners the truck system shared the same fate one after another roberts brought the disreputable mine-owners before the courts and compelled the reluctant justices of the peace to condemn them such dread of this lightning attorney-general, who seemed to be everywhere at once, spread among them, that at Belper, for instance, upon Robert's arrival, a truck-firm published the following notice, quote, Notice. Pentrick coal-mine. The Messrs. Haslam think it necessary, in order to prevent all mistakes, to announce that all persons employed in their colliery will receive their wages wholly in cash, and may expend them when and as they choose to do. If they purchase goods in the shops of Messrs Haslam, they will receive them as heretofore at wholesale prices, but they are not expected to make their purchases there, and work and wages will be continued as usual, whether purchases are made in these shops or elsewhere." This triumph aroused the greatest jubilation throughout the English working class, and brought the Union a mass of new members. Meanwhile the strike in the North was proceeding. Not a hand stirred, and Newcastle, the chief coal-port, was so stripped of its commodity that coal had to be brought from the Scotch coast, in spite of the proverb. At first, while the Union's fund held out, all went well. But towards summer the struggle became much more painful for the miners. The greatest want prevailed among them. They had no money, for the contributions of the workers of all branches of industry in England availed little among the vast number of strikers who were forced to borrow from the small shopkeepers at a heavy loss. The whole press, with the single exception of the few proletarian journals, was against them. The bourgeois, even the few among them who might have had enough sense of justice to support the miners, learned from the corrupt liberal and conservative sheets only lies about them. A deputation of twelve miners who went to London received a sum from the proletariat there, but this too availed little among the mass who needed support yet in spite of all this the miners remained steadfast and what is even more significant were quiet and peaceable in the face of all the hostilities and provocation of the mine-owners and their faithful servants no act of revenge was carried out not a renegade was maltreated not one single theft committed thus the strike had continued well on towards four months and the mine-owners still had no prospect of getting the upper hand One way was, however, still open to them. They remembered the cottage system. It occurred to them that the houses of the rebellious spirits were their property. In July notice to quit was served the workers, and in a week the whole forty thousand were put out of doors. This measure was carried out with revolting cruelty. The sick, the feeble, old men and little children, even women in childbirth, were mercilessly turned from their beds and cast into the roadside ditches. One agent dragged by the hair from her bed and into the street, a woman in the pangs of childbirth. Soldiers and police in crowds were present, ready to fire at the first symptom of resistance, on the slightest hint of the justices of the peace who had brought about the whole brutal procedure. This too the working men endured without resistance. The hope had been that the men would use violence, they were spurred on with all force to infringement of the laws, to furnish an excuse for making an end of the strike by the intervention of the military. The homeless miners, remembering the warnings of their attorney-general, remained unmoved, set up their household goods upon the moors or the harvested fields, and held out. Some who had no other place encamped on the roadsides and in ditches, others upon land belonging to other people, whereupon they were prosecuted, and having caused, quote, damage of the value of a halfpenny, end quote, were fined a pound, and being unable to pay it, worked it out on the treadmill. Thus they lived eight weeks and more of the wet fag-end of last summer under the open sky with their families, with no further shelter for themselves and their little ones than the calico curtains of their beds, with no other help than the scanty allowances of their union, and the fast-shrinking credit with the small dealers. Hereupon Lord Londonderry, who owns considerable mines in Durham, threatened the small tradesmen in his town of Seaham with his most high displeasure if they should continue to give credit to his rebellious workers. This noble lord made himself the first clown of the turnout in consequence of the ridiculous, pompous, ungrammatical ukases addressed to the workers which he published from time to time, with no other result than the merriment of the nation. When none of their efforts produced any effect, the mine-owners imported, at great expense, hands from Ireland and such remote parts of Wales as have as yet no labour movement. And when the competition of workers against workers was thus restored, the strength of the strikers collapsed. The mine-owners obliged them to renounce the union, abandon Roberts, and accept the conditions laid down by the employers. Thus ended at the close of September, the great five-months battle of the coal-miners against the mine-owners a battle fought on the part of the oppressed with an endurance courage intelligence and coolness which demands the highest admiration what a degree of true human culture of enthusiasm and strength of character such a battle implies on the part of men who as we have seen in the children's employment commission's report were described as late as eighteen forty as being thoroughly brutal and wanting in moral sense but how hard, too, must have been the pressure which brought these forty thousand colliers to rise as one man, and to fight out the battle like an army not only well disciplined but enthusiastic, an army possessed of one single determination, with the greatest coolness and composure, to a point beyond which further resistance would have been madness. And what a battle! Not against visible mortal enemies, but against hunger, want, misery, and homelessness, against their own passions provoked to madness by the brutality of wealth. If they had revolted with violence, they, the unarmed and defenceless, would have been shot down, and a day or two would have decided the victory of the owners. This law-abiding reserve was no fear of the constable's staff. It was the result of deliberation, the best proof of the intelligence and self-control of the working men. Thus were the workingmen forced once more, in spite of their unexampled endurance, to succumb to the might of capital. But the fight had not been in vain. First of all, this nineteen-week strike had torn the miners of the north of England forever from the intellectual death in which they had hitherto lain. They have left their sleep, and are alert to defend their interests, and have entered the movement of civilization, and especially the movement of the workers. The strike, which first brought to light the whole cruelty of the owners has established the opposition of the workers here for ever and made at least two-thirds of them chartists and the acquisition of thirty thousand such determined experienced men is certainly of great value to the chartists then too the endurance and law-abiding which characterized the whole strike coupled with the active agitation which accompanied it has fixed public attention upon the miners On the occasion of the debate upon the export duty on coal, Thomas Duncombe, the only decidedly Chartist member of the House of Commons, brought up the condition of the coal miners, had their petition read, and by his speech forced the bourgeois journals to publish, at least in their reports of parliamentary proceedings, a correct statement of the case. Immediately after the strike occurred the explosion at Haswell. Roberts went to London, demanded an audience with Peel insisted as representative of the miners upon a thorough investigation of the case, and succeeded in having the first geological and chemical notabilities of England, Professors Lyle and Faraday, commissioned to visit the spot. As several other explosions followed in quick succession, and Roberts again laid the details before the Prime Minister, the latter promised to propose the necessary measures for the protection of the workers, if possible, in the next session of Parliament that is, the present one, of 1845. All this would not have been accomplished if these workers had not, by means of the strike, proved themselves freedom-loving men worthy of all respect, and if they had not engaged Roberts as their counsel. Scarcely had it become known that the coal-miners of the North had been forced to renounce the Union and discharge Roberts, when the miners of Lancashire formed a union of some ten thousand men, and guaranteed their attorney-general a salary of one thousand two hundred pounds a year in the autumn of last year they collected more than seven hundred pounds rather more than two hundred pounds of which they expended upon salaries and judicial expenses and the rest chiefly in support of men out of work either through want of employment or through dissensions with their employers thus the working men are constantly coming to see more clearly that united they too are a respectable power and can in the last extremity defy even the might of the bourgeoisie. And this insight, the gain of all labor movements, has been won for the miners of England by the Union and the strike of 1844. In a very short time the difference of intelligence and energy which now exists in favor of the factory operatives will have vanished, and the miners of the kingdom will be able to stand abreast of them in every respect thus one piece of standing-ground after another is undermined beneath the feet of the bourgeoisie and how long will it be before their whole social and political edifice collapses with the basis upon which it rests but the bourgeoisie will not take warning the resistance of the miners does but embitter it the more instead of appreciating this forward step in the general movement of the workers the property-holding class saw in it only a source of rage against a class of people who are fools enough to declare themselves no longer submissive to the treatment they had hitherto received it saw in the just demands of the non-possessing workers only impertinent discontent mad rebellion against quote, unquote, divine and human order and in the best case a success to be resisted by the bourgeoisie with all its might won by quote, ill-intentioned demagogues who live by agitation and are too lazy to work it sought of course without success to represent to the workers that roberts and the union's agents whom the union very naturally has to pay were insolent swindlers who drew the last farthing from the working-men's pockets when such insanity prevails in the property-holding class when it is so blinded by its momentary profit that it no longer has eyes for the most conspicuous signs of the times surely all hope of a peaceful solution of the social question for england must be abandoned the only possible solution is a violent revolution which cannot fail to take place End of chapter nine